All right, let's begin to make our way back to our seats. And you can uh, open up your Bible to Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1. If you have a hard, an actual physical Bible, it'll be sort of in the, sort of around mid, midway. Go to the Psalms and take a left. Go for a few miles and that's where it is. Or type in uh, Nehemiah 1 ESV, Nehemiah 1 ESV in your phone and you can find it there too. So let's listen to it read now, Nehemiah 1. This morning's reading is Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Hear the word of the Lord. Excellent, excellent. This book is uh, called Lost in the Middle by Paul Tripp. Lost in the Middle by Paul Tripp. And it's sort of about midlife crisis, but the way he works through what a midlife crisis is and and how to think about it and um, find God's grace in it, basically anybody who's experienced disappointment as an adult can resonate with this book. So great book. I highly recommend it. And in this book, he has a chapter called Golden Calves. And he talks about uh, the story of Christy. So Christy will eventually marry Freddie. So Christy has a, has a uh, pretty rough childhood, but then in college she gets saved. And she meets this guy, Freddie, who's of course wonderful and attractive. And they get married, and they go on to have three children. And so, he, so Paul Tripp goes on to just speak the details of her story. And it turns out that she's got some... Some issues. Obviously, she's in a book like this, so she's got some issues, right? And so her issues are, uh, in some ways, hard to discern because the truth is she loves her children and her husband in a way that's 
sort of inappropriate. She loves them not exactly too much, but she loves them in a way that's kind of the wrong way to love them. And so as, as it progresses, her life progresses, she finds her, herself in counseling with Paul Tripp. And so he asked her this question. If someone wrote the history of your life, what would be the one thing that they would say you lived for? If someone wrote the history of your life, what would, they, what would be the one thing that they would say you lived for? And so as she thought on this question, she realized it was her husband and her children. And so when her children grew up and moved away and actually resented her for her overbearing love, and her husband was not so thrilled with her either, she realized her world, as she was defining it, was collapsing. If someone wrote the history of your life, what would be the one thing that they would say you lived for? And ultimately, the way she found grace was having those very appropriate loves ordered under a greater love, which is a love for God. So very appropriate to love your, your children and your husband. If, if you have them, you should love them deeply, wonderfully, sacrificially. However, you want to order that, those loves beneath this greater love, which is a love for God. And let that be the one thing that you live for, and you live out that life as you love them. Now, Nehemiah, we get a picture of a man who's doing that. He is, if you ask Nehemiah, what would be the one thing that they would say you lived for? Well, it's God and his people. That's the one thing I live for. And so as we read chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2, we're going to see what it looks like. What does it look like, as we've titled the sermon, to care for the right things, to care for the right things, and to care for the right things in the right way, to care for the right things. Now, this is Nehemiah, as you can guess. This is the book of Nehemiah that we're looking at. And Nehemiah, in some ways, is part two of a one, uh, in some ways, a single work, which is Ezra and Nehemiah. So Ezra is part one of this work, Nehemiah is part two of this work. So you want to read those books together, think of them as a single work. And so Nehemiah comes sort of uh, in the middle of this, of, this, of this book. So in the Hebrew Bible, these books were combined. Ultimately, they were divided into Ezra and then Nehemiah. But you can think of them as a single work, Nehemiah, or sorry, Ezra. Ezra and Nehemiah. And so in this, we get, we get the story of, and this is what we're calling the, the sermon series, you get the story of God's construction project. God's construction project. He's building something in Ezra and Nehemiah. He's building the people of God. And so for us, we're not going to go, you know, we're not going to move to Israel uh, and start working on the temple. That's not how we apply this book you know, of Ezra and Nehemiah. We apply it by building God's people building up God's people as much as, we're, as much as we're called to, as much as we can. Now, Nehemiah, uh, in, ter- in terms of a, a right way and a wrong way to read your Bible, you can sort of uh, uh, fall off the cliff on, on two sides as we do this. One is to, to turn your Bible into just a, a series of, of morality tales. You know, be like this guy. He's a good guy. Don't be like that guy. He's a bad guy. You know, and so Nehemiah is the good guy. So be like the good guy. Now, You shouldn't turn your Bible into morality tales, but here's the thing. There are morality stories in the Bible. Nehemiah is held up to us as an example to follow. So you should be like Nehemiah. So there's more going on than just be like Nehemiah, but there's not less, if that makes sense. So we're going to use Nehemiah as an example of someone who cares about the right things this morning. So what does it look like to care for the right things? Well, it's going to be reflected in three things. Our concerns our prayers and our sacrifices. Our concerns, our prayers, and our sacrifices. If someone looks at our concerns, our prayers, and our sacrifices, then may they see that we care about the right things. Let's pray. 
Father, we come before you appreciative of the, of the reflections we've already sung and heard and, and prayed even that we would be living sacrifices before you. And we pray that you would use Nehemiah's example of what it looks like to be a living sacrifice. And we know, Lord, as, as what many have said, that the problem with living sacrifices is they keep crawling off the altar. They don't stay there. And Lord, we know that that's the story of our lives. We're, we're called to be living sacrifices, and yet we keep crawling off the altar. And so, Lord, we pray that you would fasten us to the altar of our lives and that you would make us into more and more consecrated examples of living sacrifices. And we pray that this morning you'd use the book of Nehemiah to do that. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, point one, our concerns. So this is the first three verses, Nehemiah 1, 1 through 3. And then point two, our prayers is going to be his prayer in verse four through 11. And then uh, point three, uh, our sacrifices is going to be chapter two, verses one through eight. So the first three verses. Let me just read them again so they're fresh. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who, who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. So Nehemiah is identified early. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. And what Commentators have come to believe, which I think, and I, th- and I think in a right way, is that this is a, in some ways, the source of this uh, is, has been called the, the Nehemiah Memoirs, the Memoirs of Nehemiah. So there's a lot of first-person reflections here. And so the source of this material is none other than Nehemiah himself. And so he's, he's telling us his own story. But what's going to happen is at some point, Ezra is going to factor back into the book of Nehemiah. And so you have this other, other thing which people have called the Ezra Memoirs. And then you go back to this first-person Nehemiah memoirs in the book. So it's kind of a complicated book if you think of the construction of it. But that's what's happening here. We start off with the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. And he says this is happening in the 20th year. And he just says the 20th year. There's no elaboration upon that. It's just the 20th year. And so this is an excuse for us to kind of revisit some history so it's fresh. Now we went over this... Phil went over it last week, and then I went over it three weeks ago. But this is, this is complicated history, so it's helpful just to keep going over it so it, it will stick with us. Because this is, this is uh, in some ways, the, the, t- the, the broad timeline in the Old Testament helps us to interpret the Old Testament. So the 20th year of what? Well, it's the 20th year of Artaxerxes, a Persian king, Artaxerxes. He's not the first Persian king, however. Cyrus the Great is the first, in some ways, of of a certain dynasty in the Persian Empire. So Cyrus the Great is the one who writes the decree and sends the exiles back from Babylon. So he he does that in 539 or 538 B.C. So obviously these are events that happened a long time ago. Not in a galaxy far, far away, but they did happen a long time ago. So Cyrus the Great writes this decree, sends the exiles back to to Jerusalem. And then you have another king, uh, Cambyses, sorry, Cambyses or Cambyses, 530 to 522, nothing's said of him in the Bible, um, so we'll just skate past him. You get that, but then you get to Darius the Great, big deal, Darius the Great. You're not called, you know, the Great unless you're a big deal. 
So he reigns for a good while, 522 to 486. And the significance of him in the Bible is that it's during his reign that the temple is finished. So the work in the temple starts when the exiles return in, in 538. But then it stops. They get threatened. Actually, very quickly it stops. And so for 17 years, there's a pause. But then in the second year of Darius the Great, work resumes. And then it's completed in the sixth year of Darius the Great. So 516 BC or so. And then you have this other king, Ahasuerus or Xerxes. Now, you might remember him from the book of Esther. So he's there 485 to 464. So 21 years is his reign. So it's a significant reign. And still, still we're in the Persian Empire. In Ezra, uh, or sorry, Esther, the book of Esther starts in the third year of Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, and it finishes, the, the, next, the last marker is the twelfth year. So a good, a good chunk of his reign is captured there by the book of Esther. But Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, has a child, Artaxerxes. Although sometimes it's hard to figure out the actual biological connection between these certain sons of uh, one person and another. But Artaxerxes comes on the scene. So 464 to 423, he reigns a long time, 41 years. So the first uh, time marker is the seventh year. Now the seventh year is when Ezra is sent back with, the, with uh, some of the exiles uh, from uh, Babylon or from Persia uh, to Jerusalem. So that's in Ezra 7. So seventh year of Artaxerxes in Ezra 7, Ezra is sent back. Well, now we're in the 20th year, the 20th year of Artaxerxes. So you go from the seventh year where you have this, this, uh, this time of revival under Ezra but then when you get to the 20th year, what's, what's the report? The report about Israel and its, and, its, and its status. Well, the report is there in verse 2 and 3. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire and the people are in great trouble and shame. In other words, there's no great restoration that's occurred. Now, God's promise was that he would restore his people. And so what we're going to see in Nehemiah 1 is that that hasn't been fulfilled yet. And so in some ways that's what provokes Nehemiah is that the restoration hasn't been fulfilled. So Nehemiah says he's in Susa and we have to kind of let him reveal himself uh, in, in, in time. So we don't want to read later parts of the book yet. So we don't know why he's in Susa yet, technically, as we read this book, right? Susa is the capital, or actually it's the, uh, the winter palace for the kings of Persia. Now, Susa would be on the, so you have, you have at least to me, uh, you have Jerusalem over here, and then you have the, uh, the uh, Tigris and Euphrates rivers, you know, the Mesopotamian between the rivers. So you have Tigris, Euphrates, and then you have Susa on the other side. Down below here is the Persian Gulf. So in other words, Susa is in what is basically Iran, southwest Iran, modern Iran. So that's where Nehemiah is, a long way, a thousand miles or so. And he would have to get there. He doesn't, you don't just go in a straight line because that's crossing a desert. You don't do that. You, you don't do it now. You didn't do it then. So you have to, you have to go up the Tigris River, and then you come down uh, through Assyria to get there. So that's where he is. That's where he is. He's in Susa, the citadel. And we learn later that he's the cupbearer to the king, which is a big deal. In some ways, it is what it sounds like. He's the guy who bears the cup to the king. He gives the king his wine, which is, uh, there's two sides of that. Well, three sides, really. One is make sure it's not poisoned. 
which means you have to taste it, right? Make sure it's not poison. Make sure it's good wine. That's another side to it. And then the third thing is, because you were kind of a guy who was always around the king, it was expected that you were, you were just a good conversationalist. You were a good guy to have around all the time. So if you were a drag, they would fire you or, probably, or maybe cut off your head, you know, because it was, that's the way that you do things when you're a monarch in an absolute dictatorship at that time. But he's a cupbearer to the king. That's very different from Ezra in the last sermon where Ezra is a priest skilled in the law of Moses. This is Nehemiah. He's a political figure, not a political hack, but he is a political figure. And so he, so there he is in a very elite position, and we'll, we'll talk about what it means to be among the elites in point three, but there he is in a very elite position. There's no denying it. I mean, in some ways, he's, he's as privileged in that place as anyone on earth at that time. And yet, when his brothers come back, he's concerned. He's concerned about the state of God's people in God's place, which is Jerusalem. He's concerned. And in some ways, the concern is, well, we want to we see how exactly the people are described. So verse 2 and 3, it's not just, hey, how are y'all doing? How are they doing? It's been a long time. How are they, I mean, is the temple going up? What's going on over there? No, he speaks about it in very specific terms. He says, I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. So as he's defining these people that he cares about, he's defining them as the Jews who escaped, escaped from Babylon, who were sent back from, with Cyrus. The Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile. You know, what's distinct about them? They're the ones who survived the exile. Now what's... What's noteworthy about that is that it's been almost a century since they were actually sent back from Babylon. So it's been almost a hundred years. And yet when Nehemiah is defining them, he defines them as the people who escaped the exile. In other words, they haven't really escaped that identity, the, the, the entrappings and the signs that they were exiles. It's all over them. They haven't quite escaped that 70 years of Babylon yet. And so then his brothers, uh, Hanani and, and, other, and other men. Hanani it seems like he actually probably is one of Nehemiah's brothers. Uh, could be just a fellow Israelite, but it seems like he's probably actually one of Nehemiah's brothers. So they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates destroyed by fire. So in other words, he's concerned about God's chosen people in God's chosen place, the Israelites in Jerusalem at that time. And we do want to transfer that somehow to us. What does it mean to care about God's chosen people in God's chosen place today? It really doesn't mean that we are concerned about the city of Jerusalem or Israelites per se. I mean, we're, we're, we care about people. We care about all nations, and so we care about them. But there's not necessarily a special concern for, the, for that city and that nation. And here's, here's why we want to say that. First of all, we're all part of the chosen people, and we're part of the chosen people, the sons of Abraham, by faith. Our our race, our physical race, our biological race has nothing to do with it. It's our faith. So this is from Galatians 3. In Christ Jesus, not in Abraham, but in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And if you are Christ's, So then he goes on a few verses later. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. 
all the lavish, wonderful promises made to Abraham, like in Genesis chapter 12 and 15 and 17, the, the lavish promises are fulfilled in us. Not physical Israelites, but they're, they're fulfilled in us as we believe in Christ. As we believe in Christ, we enter into what it is to be the chosen people uh, of Abraham. Now Paul continues on, and he, and he steps into some deep waters here, but what he's going to tell us is sort of, you know, what is the the true Jerusalem that we really care about now. Now, obviously, because we're Christians, we care about people, right? And so we care about the city of Jerusalem in that sense today. It's not that we don't, we don't care about Jews or, or, or Jerusalem. It's not like that. However, you don't want to um, over-spiritualize what Jerusalem is. So here's, here's how Paul says this, and this is, this is deep waters, but in, in Galatians 4, he goes on to say, now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women... So the two wives of Abraham, he's got Sarah and Hagar. Hagar's a slave. Sarah's his, 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 his free woman wife, as, as he refers to her. He has a child by both women. And what is going to happen is that God's going to say that the child of Sarah, the, the free woman, is the one who will be the heir. So that's Isaac, of course. So the son of Hagar, Ishmael, isn't going to be the heir. And so Paul says we need to learn from that. This is telling us something. And so he says, this one, now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, the physical Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. So as Christians, we care about the Jerusalem above and the citizens who are in the Jerusalem above. Now, we're, now as Christians, we're all part of the Jerusalem above. It doesn't mean only the people who have died and kind of gone, you know, gone to be with the Lord. That isn't what it means. It means people who are Christians. We're citizens of that Jerusalem, the Jerusalem above. She is, she is our mother. And so what it means then to be uh, concerned about God's chosen people and God's chosen place means we're concerned about the church. And we don't want to um, kind of misinterpret that, like, therefore, we don't care about unbelievers. Now, we heard Craig Cabanis two weeks ago talk about what it is to be a sent church, a sent people. As the Father has sent me, Jesus said, so I send you. So to be part of the church means you're part of a sent people, a sent church, a missional church. You're not part of a static church, in other words. So we care about the church. And so if you are those who are caring about the right things, you will care about the church. If you're going to be those who care about the right things, you're going to be those who express that care for the church by being concerned about a local church with all its warts and all, you know, all its mess, all its sinfulness, all its very human, slightly above average people. You're going to be concerned about a particular local church. And so we don't, want to, we don't want to think that we are uh, concerned about God and what he cares about if we are just indifferent about the church. You can't, you can't do that. that. That option doesn't really exist. Now, we understand that we're in process. We struggle with that, maybe, perhaps. Uh, but ultimately, to love God is to love his people, and it is, to, therefore, to love the church. John Stott has a great, uh, a great quote from his commentary on Ephesians where he's reflecting on this this 
kind of central concern of God's, which is the church. And he says this, If the church is central to God's purpose, as seen in both history and the gospel, it must surely also be central to our lives. How can we take lightly what God takes so seriously? How dare we push to the circumference what God has placed at the center? Now, we shall seek to become responsible church members, active in some local manifestation of the local church. We shall not be able to acquiesce in in low standards, which fall far, far short of the New Testament ideals for God's new society. If instead we keep before us the vision of God's new society as his family, his dwelling place, and his instrument in the world, then we shall constantly be seeking to make our church's worship more authentic, its fellowship more caring, and its outreach more compassionate. In other words, we shall be ready to pray, to work, and if, and if necessary, to suffer in order to turn the vision into a reality. Now He's, he's just trying to capture the book of Ephesians, basically, in a, in a single paragraph, especially as it, as it concerns the church. But he's also, in some ways, in a single paragraph, capturing what, is, what Ezra and Nehemiah is about. It's about this thing at the center, this thing at the center of God's concern in the world, which is his people, his church. So, Lord willing, may we be ready to pray, to work, and if necessary, to suffer in order to turn the vision of a mature people of God into a reality. So that's point one, our concerns. Now point two, our prayers. So caring for the right things is going to be reflected in our prayers. And Nehemiah's prayer here uh, in 1, 5 through 11 is one of, the, one of the great prayers in the Bible. It's one, of the great, it's one of the great prayers in Nehemiah. There's actually several great prayers. So there's, there was a prayer of Ezra in, in, in the book of Ezra. There's, a, there's several prayers of Nehemiah, uh, which are just rich, theological, inspiring prayers, very orienting prayers. And so we, we definitely want to let Nehemiah instruct us in how to pray. So in verse 4, so he hears this report. And his, his response is helpful. What is his, his response to this very bleak report about the state of, of Jerusalem at the time? He says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and, con- and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And what we're going to see is it, it, it was actually months that he did that. So chapter 2, verse 1 starts four months later. Four months later, he has an opportunity to kind of act on the prayer that he prays here uh, in chapter one. So presumably for months, he's praying these things, and obviously with some variation. He's praying these things. And so let's think about his prayer. Well, first, we want to think about to whom he prays. How does he think of this God that he's praying to? Huge issue. Well, in verse five, he says, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. That's the God he's praying to. Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. O Lord, you know, Yahweh, uh, the I am who I am. So, so uh, the, the covenant name of God that is given to Moses in Exodus chapter three, the, burning, the great burning bush passage. So that's Yahweh. But then he refers to him as the God of heaven. Actually, twice in this passage, he's referred to as the God of heaven. And to us, that might sound kind of obvious. Well, of course he's the God of heaven. 
or the God of heaven and earth. You know, you see that in other places. But actually, the God of heaven is a, is a rare phrase. <clears throat> it's only used twice be, until you get to the book of Daniel. Two times in the book of Genesis. Genesis 24, a couple times, God's referred to as the God of heaven. And then, not again, until you get to Daniel chapter 2, and then it's used three times. And then in Ezra and Nehemiah, it's used, I don't know, 10 or 20 times. And what's interesting about that is that what probably made that phrase famous, at least p- perhaps, is that actually Cyrus, the king of Persia, uses the phrase. So in Ezra 1-2, thus Cyrus, king of Persia, makes this decree. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. And so in some ways, Cyrus using that phrase, uh, we don't want to necessarily say the Jews are taking their doctrine of God from Cyrus. You wouldn't want to say it that way. But it is true that at that time, in captivity, and in the the generations following captivity, they understood that God is not just the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Often in the Old Testament, he's referred to as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But once they're in Persia, Babylon, those empires, they realize he's not just the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God of heaven. He is the God who rules over all other gods. There are pantheons, and there are pantheons of pantheons of gods, and God rules over all all of them. In fact, none of them can really claim the title of God in any kind of appropriate way. None of them are gods. At best, they're demons. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. At best, they're demons. They're not truly gods. But anything you call a god, God rules over it because he's the God of heaven. And when you're praying to the God of heaven, that gives you confidence to pray, doesn't it? It's good to remember who you're praying to if you're praying for something massive, you know, you're, you're going to pray for a healing. And maybe you know you're going to pray for someone's healing. And you, you really want to pray for their healing. Not just a token prayer, but you really want to pray in faith for someone's healing from a, perhaps a major illness, a major disease, a major symptom. And you want to pray for their healing. It's good to recall, who exactly am I praying to here? He's the God of heaven. And then, he's the great and awesome God. You know, I grew up with... You know, as a believer, I grew up with Rich Mullins. You know, our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven and earth. So I have that in my head. I don't know what you have with awesome God. You might think awesome is a trivial word, but don't lose it. You know, we, we lose two words too often as Christians that we can't use for, for whatever reason. Don't lose awesome. Just use it in the right way. He is the awesome God. Your peanut butter sandwich was not awesome. It might have been really good. I had... A peanut butter sandwich this morning. It was really good, but it was not awesome. The thing with the word awesome is it has in it this word fear. If something is awesome, it inspires fear. It rightly inspires fear. And God is awesome in that sense because he inspires fear, and he should. You're not wrong to be uh, fearful of him or be be inspired to fear him, as it were. But what we find with Nehemiah is that he's, he's got the book of Deuteronomy in his mind as he's praying. So, I mean, uh, if, you, if you detail the connections between the, his prayer and the book of Deuteronomy, they're, they're, just, they're just legion. They're all over the place. But I think he's, when he prays to the awesome God, I think he has passages like this from Deuteronomy 7 in mind. So, and this is Moses talking to the people, and he's telling them that when you go into Canaan, you're going you're gonna to have lots of enemies. 
Do not fear those enemies. Don't fear them. Why? Because God, the awesome God, is the one that is on your side. In other words, you should fear him, yes, because he's the awesome God. He's the fear-inspiring God. But don't fear those Canaanites. So this is what Moses says, you shall not be afraid of them. You shall not fear them. But you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. You shall not be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. That's, that's who Nehemiah is praying to, that God. The God who crushed the Canaanites before the Israelites. Not because the Israelites were, there were some strategic you know, geniuses when it came to fighting military battles. They won because the Lord your God was in their midst the great and awesome God. But this kind of supreme, triumphing uh, God is not, is not the only way that Nehemiah thinks of him. He also thinks of him, rightly so, as the God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He is faithful. He is faithful and he's loving. Steadfast love is trying to get at that idea of, of hesed. And when it's God's hesed to us, when it's God's steadfast love to us, it's a love that started before there was anything. When it was only God, before the creation came along, he set his love on us. We're saved because he set his love on us. It's a steadfast love from eternity past, from everlasting to everlasting. It's an everlasting love that will continue in the, in the, in the future, unending, more certain than the, the rising and the setting of the sun. You know, the, the sun is a fading star, and one day it's not going to be here. But God's love will always be here. One day this world will not be here. There's going to be a new, a new heavens and a new earth. But God's love will remain fixed, steadfast, not because it's, you know, it's, it's so hardly traceable that, you, that yeah, okay, whatever. I, I mean, why would I want such a thing that, to last forever? No, it's a passionate, active love for us. And it's steadfast. It will always be there, utterly faithful. And it's for those who love him and keep his commandments. And you don't want to turn his, his steadfast love into something conditional, like we have to earn it. But you also don't want to miss that his salvation is for those who, who believe in him. His salvation is for those who believe in him. And so keeps covenant, or sorry, with those who love him and keep his commandments is really another way of saying by faith. It just doesn't say by faith. We are his, we are united to him by faith. So loving him and keep his, keeping his commandments, that's, that's what it looks like. That's what the life of faith looks like. It looks like love for him and it looks like keeping his commandments. So you can't claim faith and have absolutely no love for God and absolutely no obedience to his commands. That, that doesn't work. Your faith is, is, uh, is evidenced by in certain ways. It's evidenced by your love for him and keeping his commandments. So faith in him is, is how we are his. That's how we belong to him. That's how we're united with him. And that's, what, that's, that's how we get to enter into this amazing love relationship with the Lord. So then he goes on and he prays he, he prays a, a confession of sin and the, the significance of Nehemiah's confession, like Ezra's confession of sin in the end of Ezra, is that he identifies with Israel's sin. There's no record of Ezra or Nehemiah committing the sins that, that Israel committed and earned 
their captivity. And yet both men identify with God's people in that sense. And so at the end of chapter, verse 6, so when, when, as, when uh, Nehemiah is, thinking, is confessing the sins of the people, he says, even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you. We have acted very corruptly against you. So this is a, it's a confession that's, that's, that sweeps in, into it centuries of sinning, centuries of national sins and, and individual sins. And so he lays all that out before the Lord. Lord, in other words, we deserve what we have received. We deserve it. We deserve what we have received. But then he prays for the Lord to remember. Remember the word that you spoke to Moses. This is verse uh, verse 8. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. So the God who keeps his covenant is the God who threatens things if you disobey. If you, if you disobey, I will send you to a foreign people. And he sent them to Babylon, just as he warned them. Now, we, he didn't just wake up angry and do it in a moment. He took centuries of warning and threatening, and then he finally sent them to Babylon. That's true. However, the other thing with Deuteronomy is it doesn't just promise that you will go to captivity for your sins. It also promises that you will come back. I will restore you. So there's, there's lots of uh, Deuteronomy we could look at, but here are two verses that, that really mirror what Nehemiah has said. This is from Deuteronomy 30. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you, and the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it, and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And what's, what you don't want to miss um, I don't think this is me just being a Bible nerd. I, th- I think this is really important. That What you don't want to miss is that Nehemiah, 100 years after the return to Jerusalem, is basically saying, you haven't done it yet. You haven't fulfilled the restoration promise. And so that reality, that duality, I mean, that's, that's the rest of the book. That's the rest of the Old Testament. That's the rest of the New Testament. That's the rest of church history. There's a restoration promised and we're, we're just looking ahead until it's fulfilled. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. Well, Nehemiah knows the score. He knows that about 40,000 people returned from, from Babylon. So two tribes. So some from Judah and some from Benjamin came back. 40,000 people. Well, that's only two of 12 tribes, right? There were some Levites sprinkled in there as well, of course. That's, that's where Ezra came from. Some Levites are sprinkled in there, but it's not all 12 tribes. It's a fraction of those 12 tribes. And so he knows that this this has yet to occur. This has yet to be fulfilled. And so he's really praying, Lord, fulfill your promise. Restore your people. Restore your captive people. A hundred years after the exile, with the people already in Jerusalem, He's praying, Lord, restore your people. And so the the work of Nehemiah is basically him taking part in that restoration, rebuilding process. And then he prays very practically, grant mercy. Grant me mercy. 
Grant me mercy in the sight of this man. And, and then he goes on to talk about Artaxerxes. Grant me mercy in the sight of this man. Because he knows that with the state of Jerusalem being what it is, the state of the people being what it is, with the reality of God's covenant promises out there, I need to do something. I need to take part in this. This is, this is Nehemiah caring about the right things. I need to sacrifice on its behalf. And, I, and ultimately, we're going to see in, in the beginning of chapter 2, is he, he puts it all on the line. I mean, it's like, it's like he's putting his head down uh, on, on the guillotine and basically saying, Artaxerxes, help us, help me. And he's just going to wait there until the blade either falls or it doesn't fall. So that's, that's point three, our sacrifices. So point two was our prayers. If, if we care about the right things, it's going to be reflected in our prayers. The, you know, the God to whom we pray, our, our confessions of sin. And then praying for the practicals, right? Grant him mercy. Uh, Nehemiah had a very practical need, which is mercy before our Xerxes. And so he prays for it. Just like in the Lord's Prayer that Jesus teaches us. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Exalted, supreme God to whom we're praying. Give us this day our daily bread. My family, feed my family today. So we, we never want to say that our needs, our little practical needs are unimportant to the Lord, who is the fa- our Father in heaven, not far from it. Jesus instructs us exactly the opposite. No. Because of our confidence in our relationship with our Father in heaven, we pray for our daily, daily needs, whatever they might be. All right, point three, our sacrifices, two, one through eight. <clears throat> so in the month of Nisan, which is uh, March, April, that's, uh, that's actually the time of the Passover. It's when Jesus was crucified in the month of Nisan. So in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of, Art- of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. Now, why would he say that? Well, because the weight of Jerusalem and its people is still on him. And he knows it's affecting his demeanor. So the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Despair, disappointment, discouragement. This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. Why would he say that? Well, because he's a cupbearer to the king, and one of your jobs is to make the king happy. And you being sad is a downer. That does not help the king. So he knew that the, the, the uh, unemployment benefits for cupbearers to the king are really bad. <laughs> so I was very much afraid. Then I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? You know, a, a sign of, hmm, that's some hope there. What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. You know, he had the presence of mind in that very moment to think, this is it, Lord, help me. So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah to the city of my father's graves that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, so maybe the scene has changed, it's not the party anymore, maybe it's their private residence, we're not sure, but the queen is sitting beside him. How long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, because this isn't the first time Nehemiah had thought about this situation. He'd been thinking about it for four months and strategizing. Then I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river. In other words, 
uh, Israel is one of the provinces of the king, the kingdom of Persia at that time. It's beyond the river, beyond the Tigris-Euphrates rivers. So, and there's governors currently, Persian representatives kind of governing that area who don't like us. So let, let letters be sent to them that you may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that you may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. Not because I was so strategic in my timing and so wise in my words. I, had, I found favor and success because the good hand of my God was upon me. There's a lot to pull from this, but one thing I think is worth thinking about is this notion of what it means to be a believer among the elites. A believer among the elites. That phrase, the elites, gets used a lot today, and it's helpful to think about what it means to be a believer among the elites, like Nehemiah was. So the elites basically are you know, the powerful, the influential, the men and women who run everything you know, in a given society or culture. So the, the, the main institutions of a given culture. So those are the elites, all right? Now, some of us are elites in our field. You know, we've, we've achieved kind of a significant status in our chosen field. And so we're, we're elite in that sense, and that's a kind of relative sense. But ultimately, what, what Nehemiah is telling us here is that being an effective, spiritually fruitful elite, or, or being among the elites, requires you to always be willing to sacrifice everything for the sake of God. You, know, you who cares about the right thing, you have, your sacrifices will reveal that. So your, your sacrifices for the company, that doesn't reveal that you care about the right things. But you might sacrifice a lot for the company, and all the while, you're willing to lay it all aside for the sake of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that might reveal that you're caring about the right things. Now, Nehemiah was an elite in his day. I mean, he was a cupbearer to the king. That was a privileged position. You know, wealth, security, protection. Uh, that, that was a privileged position in his day. And so the, the reason Nehemiah stuck out as a model of this is the things he combines. Now here, you know, as he has an opportunity to actually speak to the king, he says, let the king live forever. Let the king live forever. And we don't get any sense that, he, that he's disingenuous about that. I mean, honestly, you could, you could say that's actually a gospel presentation. Let the king live forever. He knows that only eternal life is in the God that he believes in, so let the king believe in, in my God. But it's also a, just a basic honorific way of speaking to the king at that time. And he was, he was freely doing that. Let the king live forever. You find that same kind of address in, in the book of Daniel. When Daniel addresses Nebuchadnezzar, let the king live forever. But... So, to be among the elites, you've got, to, you've got to talk the talk. But if you go back to the end of verse 11 in chapter 1, when he's praying, grant him, in other words, grant Nehemiah, grant him mercy in the sight of this man. What man is he talking about? Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes didn't think he was just a man. But Nehemiah knew, this is just a guy. <clears throat> he's just a man. He's my boss. He's my king but he's also just a man. And so the elites of any given a day and time are just men and women. That's all they are. Sinners, desperately in need of salvation, have no hope apart from Jesus Christ, have no treasure apart from Jesus Christ. 
have no value apart from Jesus Christ. And Nehemiah got that. He got that. Oh, king, live forever, yet I know you're just, you're just a guy. Yes, I'm going to address you appropriately in all the, in all the right titles and, and posturing. I'm going to do that because that's what we do. However, I know that you're just a man. Also, in being among the elites, there's a, there's a way that he talks which is tactful and strategic. He never mentions the name of the city, Jerusalem. So in, in, in that whole two, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 8 conversation, he never mentions the city he's actually talking about. How does he describe the city? He calls it the city of my father's graves. Why would, he, why would you do that? Because a guy like Artaxerxes cares about properly honoring your father and your ancestors through, through uh, ornate graves. That would not be lost on him. That would mean something to him. In fact, he doesn't, it doesn't seem like he yet even knows what city he's talking about. I mean, Artaxerxes is just like, you know what? You need to do that. You need to take care of your father's graves. You need to go to the, the city of your father's graves, and you need to attend to that, because that is not good. In other words, he knows how to speak. In fact, Jerusalem isn't even mentioned. You know, in verse 9 and 10, after he actually goes on the journey and talks to the governors of the land, doesn't mention Jerusalem. The only time Jerusalem comes up again is in verse 11. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. He knows how to speak strategically for, he's not, he's not lying. I mean, he says, I'm, I need to go to Judah. I need to go to the cities of my father's graves. That's exactly what that city is. He's not lying. And yet he's also st- strategic in what he says. And then there's also this, this rigid, wonderful God-centeredness all the time. So he's, he feels fear in, cha- in, in chapter 2, verse 2, but then, but then as we, we, we drew attention to it already, but then I prayed to the God of heaven when I was about to speak. You know, there I am. I mean, the king's looking at me. I'm looking at him. I'm, I now have to answer his question. And so what do I do? I pray. Silently, of course, but I pray. I pray to my God who is in heaven so that as I speak to this man, I speak well, I speak truthfully, I speak fruitfully. So there's a God-centeredness that really captures Nehemiah in a very powerful way. But, but, but as, we've already, as we've already hit, it's a willingness to lay it all down. He knew that this could really not end well for him. I mean, his whole life could be over in a moment if, if Artaxerxes gets offended by something he said or does. And yet he's willing to lay it all down. Why? Because God's people, God's people and the city are broken. And I need to do what I can to fix them. I'm no priest skilled in the law of Moses like Ezra was. However, I'm going to do what I can, which is rebuild the walls. I can do that. I can lead a reconstruction project. Can't teach the law like, like Ezra does, but I will get him to do that. But I can build some walls. And so I'm going to go do that. Now, the ultimate, the ultimate example of, of caring for the right things and, and, and leading to a, a sacrifice even unto death is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark 10, 45, as he's, as he's talking about what true sacrifice is, what true service is. You know, the greatest among you will be those who serve. He says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And it's not like Nehemiah where there's the possibility, but it might not happen. He knows that 
the end of his journey, Jesus knows that the end of his journey was a crucifixion. It was shedding his own blood. It was dying. A very agonizing, painful death. He knew that that's where his, his service, his service to the king, you know, the, the, his father in heaven, his service to the king is going to lead him there, to that place of sacrifice. And yet that sacrifice was a ransom for many. It was a payment. There are captives and they're trapped, imprisoned, and they will never be released from that, that imprisonment, which is sin and, and a future damnation. They will never be released unless I make the payment. I pay the ransom. Me paying the ransom is what will deliver them, what will deliver the exiles and the captives, the outcasts in the language of Nehemiah. That's what will make the difference. And so Jesus gives his life unto death. <clears throat> He's a living sacrifice, it is true, everything he did from conception to death was a sacrifice. He was always sacrificing himself for the sake of, of the will of the Father and the, for the sake of his people. But he also ended that living sacrificial life with his own death. It was a sacrifice unto death. So God give us grace to be willing. It's not likely that we're going to make that, we're not going to sacrifice to death in the way that he did but part of Christian maturity is being willing to do that. If it comes to it, we want to be willing for that moment. So caring for the right things, it means that we're, we care about Christ and his church. We care about his people. You know, we don't want to think of, of you know, loving the church uh, like some guy who's got some, has a vision for marriage. You know, I love, I love the idea of marriage. I love God's idea of marriage. And so therefore, I'm committed to all women everywhere. That's not the way it works. If you love God's idea of marriage, then you choose a woman who's going to choose you in return. Hopefully it works out both ways, right? And we're going to be, we're going to be faithful unto death. We're going to love each other as well as we can until we die. That's what it looks like to have a, a vision for God's uh, idea of marriage. And we, we know that not all marriages result in that way. <clears throat> but that's what it is to have a commitment to marriage. Just like a commitment to the church universal means I'm going to pick a church and I'm going to love her well. Not till death do us part. doesn't mean that. But I'm going to love the, whatever church I'm a part of at the time, I'm going to love it well, as long as I'm here. So care for the right things means our prayers are going to, be, are going to reflect God's priorities and God's word. <clears throat> and then caring for the right things means that, that as we have opportunity among the elites or among uh, the non-elites of our day, you know, whoever who we happen to be around at the time, we're going to, we're going to be willing to lay it all down uh, for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. So to go back to that question from Paul Tripp, if someone wrote the history of your life, what would be the one thing that they would say you lived for? If someone wrote the history of your life, what would be the one thing that they would say you lived for? Please consider that. Please consider that against the book of Nehemiah. What would be the one thing that they would say you lived for? <clears throat> so let me finish with Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, and acceptable, and perfect. Let's pray. Father, we, th we 
We pray that you would just pierce our hearts, convict our hearts, renew our minds with your word. We pray that the places where we are falling short in terms of what we care for and love, we pray that you would sanctify. And we know that for some of us, that that first love for you is where, where we are lacking. Maybe it's because we're not Christians. And so if that's, if that's the case, then I pray for those people, Lord, that you would just... You would just implant in them the seed of a love for you which grows to full maturity. Let that seed of faith, that seed of love grow into an oak tree of righteousness in their lives. But for all of us, Lord, we do pray that where we have disordered loves, where we are loving things in the wrong way and and out of priority order, uh, the order that we see in the word of God, Lord, help us. Help us to reprioritize, to reorder the loves in our hearts so that we love you first and foremost. And we love you in such a way that it colors everything else that we love. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.